We made it to the end of the book of Romans. We've only spent six months uh, working through this incredible letter of the Bible. And even then, I reckon we've raced through it. There are bits I would have happily spent a lot more time on uh, and I think we could have profitably dwelt on uh, being challenged by what is surely one of the sharpest parts of God's sword, the sword of the Spirit, God's Word. But like a journey, sometimes you get near the end and you just can't wait for it to be over. Uh, so you can move on to whatever happens to be next, especially when there's a great long list of very difficult names and I, I think Jason almost deserved a standing ovation for, uh, for, for getting through that. Yeah, well done. Um, to me, it almost feels like the credits at the end of a movie, the names just start rolling up the screen and no one's staying around to find out who the gaffer and the best boy are or who did Paul's hairstyle except for the strange few who love that kind of minutia or the ones who've been tipped off that there's something after the credits you've got to stay for, like any good Marvel movie. Uh, But when it comes to the Bible, we, we shouldn't think like that because the ends of the letters are just as much God's word to us as the rest. And very often it's the ends of the letters that we find Paul's point for writing them. Uh, Just as in this case, he often gives in his closing bits the reason that he wrote and it's the key that really unlocks the whole application. What are we supposed to do with this letter, with all its deep theology and weighty challenges? But at the same time, I think we also get great insight into the personal impact of of what he said in the letter and what he's been saying in, in general in his ministry and how it is that the gospel impacts and touches individual people's lives and decisions and walk with God and how, how it creates and, and nourishes Christian relationships. And I think we see that all here. So why did Paul write this incredible letter to the Christians in Rome? Was it because he thought they were a bunch of pagans uh, and he thought he'd twist their arm into becoming Christians. Is that what's going on? Anyone? What do you reckon? Yes, no? He thought, losers need to go to Christ. Um, no, 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 he didn't think that. Was it that the church there was in such a great big mess and needed sorting out, like, say, the Corinthian church, or two letters to them, and just... Is that the case? Does it sound like it from what we've read so far? You know, as you kind of, oh, you idiots, uh, look what you're doing. No, quite the contrary. Look at chapter 15 and verse 14 where we started uh, tonight. I myself am convinced, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, complete in knowledge and competent to instruct one another. He thinks this is a great bunch of Christians. This is a great church. This is the church he'd go to if he had the choice. Uh, and he reckons they could happily go on being Christians into the future. They actually don't need him to tell them anymore. Um, but, so why has he written this great long letter explaining everything in so much detail? Why is he written? Well, I reckon for two reasons that he tells us here. And I pose them as two questions on the handout. Question number one. Will the Christians in Rome welcome Paul and welcome his message when he comes to them? Because it turns out he's planning to come there soon and he wants to know they'll welcome him and his message, his gospel, with open arms. Question two, will the Roman Christians now work together with Paul on the mission? Will they join in wholeheartedly with what he's doing in his efforts to reach new parts of the world which haven't been reached yet, supporting it, 
earnestly praying for it, being part of it, financing it even. And you can see he wants them to welcome him in verse 23 and 4. He says, But now there's no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I've been longing to see you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. So I'm I'm coming to hang out. Or verse 32, So that by God's will I may come to you with joy and together with you be refreshed. He's coming to see them and he wants it to be a great visit, to be really encouraging and full of joy and mutual benefit and you know, loving each other as, as Christian brothers and sisters. Will they welcome him when he comes? But he's not just after warm fuzzies. It's not a social call that he's making at all. He wants them to join in with him in his work. And you see that in verse 24. I plan to come to you when I go to Spain. I hope to visit with you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there. I want you to pay for the trip after I've enjoyed your company for a little while. You can see it also in verse 30, another way he wants them to join in with the work. I urge you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Pray that I might be rescued from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service in Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints there so that I may come to you in joy and together with you be refreshed. And because those are his two aims, that he wants a warm welcome when he comes for him and for his gospel, and because he wants them to join in with the mission work that he's on, he spent the whole letter basically laying out in very careful detail everything about his gospel message with absolute clarity clearing up all the bits and pieces, uh, all the deep theology behind it, all the ways that it impacts itself, um, so that when he gets there, there'll be no confusion, there'll be no disappointment, there'll be no, oh, I didn't know that's what you were on about. (laughs) And, And to finish off with his clarification, he summarizes exactly what his mission is in chapter 15 laying out his whole modus operandi, if you speak Latin, uh, or his plan of attack. This is, this, is, this is how he works. This is his vision 2020 statement, if you like, because obviously he was thinking about St Barnabas you know, 2,000 years later. His vision 2020 statement. If you've, if you've never seen that, if you want to know what our church is on about, here's, here's our vision statement. There you go. So you can read and think, yeah, okay, that's what we're doing. That, that, that's the right things or the wrong things. And, and if it's the right things, get on board with it. And that's what he's writing to them, it's in pastels because my printer's kind of run out of some inks and it's gone crazy. So everything's in pink and anyway, very beautiful. There's a bunch of them up the back. Uh, he wants them to understand his mission so that they can get on board. And it's no small thing, his mission. He says it's nothing short of God's entire plan for the salvation of the nations of the world. That's what I'm on about. I'm going to win the world for Jesus. Come with me, pay for me, join me, pray for me. Uh, See verse 15. I've written you quite boldly on some points as if to remind you of them again. He he thought they already knew them. Because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles with the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified in the Holy Spirit. Bang, that's what he's on about. And what's fascinating is that Paul basically lifts language almost wholesale from Leviticus and Deuteronomy 
and the end of Exodus, about all the temple worship stuff, all the stuff of priesthood in the Old Testament. And he's using it to describe his work amongst the the non-Jews, the nations, the people like us, people who didn't grow up with a Jewish mum, who who were basically abhorred and shunned by the Jews as Gentile dogs and seen as totally unacceptable to God. There's no way we could be part of God's kingdom. But Paul's in the business of seeing these people, seeing the nation, seeing us made acceptable to God, set apart for God, made clean. And, and he does it not by the ritual and offering animal sacrifices of the Old Testament priests. He doesn't wear it, do it by wearing the umen and thumen, the kind of weird little vest thing that the priests had to wear and when they wanted God's will, they could tap it and like a Ouija board almost. Hey, go back and read Exodus, weird. Um, he doesn't do it by wearing the priestly robes and stuff. What's his priestly duty? How does he go about this ministry of presenting the, the nations acceptable to God? Anyone see it there? We've got a particular priestly duty. A priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what he's on about. That's what he's been doing. And that's how it is that the nations of this world are sanctified and set apart for God. That's how people are made new. That's how they can come before God cleansed and forgiven by hearing this message of Jesus Christ crucified and risen again, that he's alive, that he's the Lord, that everything he's about. And and he wants them to be clear and he wants us to be clear that it's only by the preaching of the gospel that that happens. And by preaching he doesn't mean standing up in pulpit in church. He means sharing it, speaking it with anyone and everyone. It's only as we share the news of Jesus that that happens. It can't happen any other way. People will never be made right with God. They'll never be made acceptable to God just by seeing Christians being nice. That's a good thing to do, be nice. God wants us to be nice. But no one will become a Christian that way. It won't happen by aid programs. It won't happen by jazz concerts. It's only as the gospel is spoken and shared and received that people can come to God that they can escape the judgment and make it to heaven. Because they have to know Jesus. And the only way to know know Jesus is to have the message about Jesus and for someone to speak the message, someone has to to be sent and tell them. That's that whole argument of chapter 10, if you remember. And as he's gone about, he says, look at the results of my ministry. You can see what I've been doing and you can see the effect. He says, verse 18, Gentiles all over the place, they've, they've come to know Jesus. They've been utterly transformed by him. And I think partly that's why he goes on to talk at the end of the chapter about the people in Macedonia and Achaia, uh, how much money they've collected to send off to the poor Christians in Jerusalem who are suffering in the, in the plague, uh, in the famine. Uh, he's trying to show the power of the gospel in transforming, utterly transforming these people he's been sharing with. Here are people who've been so gripped by the love of Jesus Christ through the preaching of the gospel They've been so set apart for God that they're overwhelmingly and utterly different now. But he says also, not just the results of mine, look at the extent of my ministry. Yeah, I'm serious about winning the world. I mean, here's a map of uh, the Mediterranean Sea. Anyone uh, been on a European vacation to the Mediterranean? Come back with a nice suntan from the Greek Isles? Uh, someone this morning had. They were, they were very chuffed to be mentioned. Uh, <laughs> There you go, uh, the boot there, that's Italy, Rome's in Italy. Um, Illicrium, he mentions that in the passage. 
don't know if you can see it from there. Uh, it's uh, Illyricum. It's above Macedonia, north of Greece. It's up present-day Macedonia. Uh, sorry, Bosnia, where Bosnia is in the Balkan Wars. Um, Macedonia is in Greece. Uh, Asia, he mentions later, that's in Turkey. And, and basically what he's been doing is wider and wider sweeps on each missionary journey that he's done, basically going in a semicircle from Israel right up, and he's, all, he's made it up to the shores of Italy, basically, hitting all of the major centres through southern Europe. And it's not been flash in the pan, it's not been door knock once, it's not been hand out a few tracks kind of stuff. He has carefully, strategically and thoroughly preached the gospel. He's worked to establish churches with clear and established leadership. He's systematically, strategically gone through these nations in these areas with the message. And the only reason he's never got to Rome before now is... Did anyone hear it in the reading? Not not because he's been prevented, but because the gospel got there ahead of him. And they'd already become Christians. There's already a church there. And he's like, I don't need to go there. It'd be really nice to hang out with my Christian brothers and sisters, but I've got work to do. I'm on about saving the world. Well, Jesus saves the world. I'm preaching his message that the nations might be presented to God. You've, you've already got it, so I haven't needed to come. I've got real work to do. So now he's ready to move on into Spain on the other side because they haven't heard yet and they need to hear. And so he's going to come, visit them, enjoy their company for a while and hopefully have them pay for his next trip. So here is the real McCoy. This is the work of God that the whole Bible speaks about. This is the work of God the whole letter has been about, God's eternal plan through Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, to make the nations acceptable so that as we hear the prayer at the very end of the book, that on the last day there will be people from every nation, every culture, every tongue and tribe gathered before God's throne, singing his praises in joy, safe for eternity, in love and glory, in the presence of God. That's what God's agenda is. That's what Jesus' agenda is. That's what the Holy Spirit's agenda is as you go through. All three are mentioned. And that's what Paul's agenda is. Will you welcome me when I come? And will you join with me in God's ministry, agonising in your prayers for the advance of it, getting behind it, financing it, joining in yourselves in it? And I want to say nothing has changed since then, except one thing. Paul's now dead. (laughs) Paul and the apostles are no longer around to personally pray for and finance. But this is still God's purpose in the world. This is his work which he urges his whole church, which he urges us to be on about while we wait for the glory that is to be revealed one day. We've got a job to do. And it's a mission that should occupy our hearts and our minds. It's a mission which should engage our wallets. It's the one that should drive us to our knees in desperate dependence that God would have this mercy and draw people to him uh, through the preaching of the gospel and then which will get us back off our knees and get to it in whatever way we can, with whatever opportunities, with whatever circumstances God brings to us. Is that what occupies your thoughts?
Is that what you'd say your life is devoted to? Is that what you're begging God to do through you, through others, through our church, through our youth group, through playgroup, through ESL, through, through our missionaries, to draw the nations of the world to himself? And we don't have to go far to get to the nations. I mean, they've all moved into Ingleburn and the surrounding suburbs, right? I mean, he's not talking about going and finding the people that ticked Anglican on the last census, right? And just making sure they come to church a bit more often. He's talking about the Bangladeshi Muslim coming to Jesus Christ and giving a life to him. He's talking about the Hindu man giving his life to Jesus Christ. He's talking about the bogan Aussie you know, pretend atheist who you know needs to know Jesus Christ. He's talking about um, you know the gay couple giving their lives to Jesus Christ. He's talking about everyone, the nations. Is that what our church stands for? And if not, why not? Is that what Mission Twenty Twenty says? That'd be a really good exercise, wouldn't it? You can't know, figure that out. <laughs> and if so, are you on board? Are you on board with it? Now that brings us to chapter 16 and to all these greetings, which I take it shows us what it now means in the lives of individual Christians to be working with Paul in this global mission. This is, this is what authentic Christian ministry looks like and does. And there's three things that really stood out to me. Three things that authentic gospel ministry does. The first thing, and I reckon this is really, really encouraging, authentic gospel ministry creates a really close-knit fellowship of workers. You can't have helped notice that as we listen to Jason read through the greetings in chapter 16. Uh, well done, you made it through, uh, and we made it through with you. I, I count at least 35 individuals who are named there, uh, and then two families on top of that, and then at least three house churches are mentioned. And, and some... There's some things that really struck me and stood out to me about this close-knit fellowship that are just really impressive and encouraging. One, it's a, it's a hard-working and united fellowship. Now, you see that from verse 1. Phoebe, a servant of the church in Cancrea. Or verse 6, Mary, who has worked hard. Or verse 9, Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. Or verse 12, Trophina and Trophosa, those women who worked hard in the Lord. Verse 21, Timothy, our fellow worker. Or verse 22, Tertius. I love Tertius. I now love Tertius. I didn't even know he existed before this week. Um, turns out Tertius is the one who actually wrote the letter of Romans. There you go. Didn't know that, did you? Anyway, I used to imagine Paul sitting there in the dark, slumped over his desk with his quill in the candlelight, slaving away over this scroll. Turns out he's got his feet up on the desk. He's got a PA taking down dictation anyway. Uh, good on Tertius. And, and as I read through that list, I can't help but think of all the people around here who work hard to make church happen, who you know, are doing emails and, and things behind the scenes, who are organising the cleaners from 8 o'clock, a lot of them from 8 o'clock, who come in and rise, who come in and clean this place. And uh, the people who um, are serving our youth group and in teaching and and the scripture teachers and the people behind the scenes and the organisers and you know, Kristen doing the rosters and, 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 and this is massive team of people at work uh, to make the gospel happen here and, and going outside into our community in different ways, reaching different groups. 
It's wonderful. And the point is that all these people are labouring selflessly for others and for the sake of the gospel. It's a completely mixed bunch. Some of them are Jews. Some of them are Gentiles. Some of them are high flyers. There's Erastus in verse 23 who's described as the director of public works for the city of Rome itself. I mean, we're talking about the city treasurer of Rome in pagan Rome has become a Christian and he's labouring hard for the cause of Christ. And then there's a whole bunch of people who'd never make the list of the rich and famous and influential who'd labouring away just as hard and just as valuably all to make sure that the gospel is expanded across the world in their own local regions, in the nations around them as it goes out to the ends of the earth. But they're not just a hard-working bunch. It's a highly committed fellowship because they're willing to put their homes and their finances and even their necks on the block. Extraordinary commitment to each other and the gospel right through the whole list. I mean, look at Phoebe again uh, at the start of the chapter. She's a servant of the church in Kengreve. At the end, she's been a great help to many people, including me. And I'm not quite sure why they've translated it that way. It's true, she has been a great help. But Paul's absolutely specific in the original language of how she's been of such tremendous help to him and to many people. Literally, she has been a patron to many. Anyone know what a patron is? What's a patron? Yeah, Mitch. Yeah, well, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Patreon, that's how you fund stuff. Yeah, what's it? It's, a fine, it's someone who backs stuff. A patron of the arts is someone who pays to keep art galleries open just because they want them open. They're not invested in it. They're not making any money for it. It's someone who gives big bucks. That's a patron. She's a patron to Paul and to many. <coughs> she is personally financed and underwritten Paul's ministry in places at times and lots of other gospel workers over the years. I mean, you can imagine she's a probably well-to-do lady from the North Shore. You know, with a fat checkbook and her pearls. Um, and imagine getting out of her checkbook and, oh, you want to go as a missionary to Africa? We can make that happen. <laughs> oh, more college, hey? All right, here we go. I'll, I'll pay for you to go there. Uh, you, know, uh, you want to do MTS at St Barnabas, Ingleburn? I don't know why, but okay, all right, here we go. <laughs> uh, she's a gospel patron. Uh, she reminds me of a lady I read about at a college, um, uh, Selina, the Countess of Huntingdon, there you go, who was described as an imperious lady. She was the daughter of one earl and she married the son of another earl and so she was quite wealthy and well-to-do uh, and she became a Christian and she, uh, the, the churches in London were closed at the time to the, to the gospel. They hated Jesus, even though they were churches. Anyway, go, go figure. Uh, and... She decided what she would do is hire her own ministers and she had them come to her house and she invited the Prince of Wales and the Duke of York and everyone she knew in well-to-do society to come to sit there and listen to sermons by these preachers that she hired okay, so that they could hear the gospel and be saved. And she went, no, that's not good enough. And she sold a lot of the family jewellery and built a church beside a house which she then had the right to fill the pulpit with the ministers she wanted who preached the gospel. And she said, that's not enough. So she sold the rest of her jewellery and built two more churches, one in Tumbly Downs and one in Bath. There you go. Um, I mean, there's, there's a gospel patron, right? 
absolutely committed. Or Priscilla and Aquila in verse 5. They've got a church in their home. Or Gaius in verse 23, he's got a church in his home. I understand Hoxton Park Anglican, you know, which is a pretty big church now. It started with eight families in someone's garage as a house church. I mean, think what it would take to have church in your house week after week. This lot, hanging out at your place, the room, the, the furniture moving, the cleaning afterwards. I mean, that's a lot of effort to have a church at your house. <coughs> and Priscilla and Aquila not only hosted a church, he says they also risked their lives for me. They risked their lives for Paul in verse 4. Or Andronicus and Julius, who are in prison with Paul for the gospel at some stage. Absolutely committed, risking their lives. Or Rufus's mum. I love Rufus's mum. I wish I had known her. I wish she was my mum. I love my mum. But uh, Verse 13, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother who has been a mother to me too. You can imagine Paul's just come back from another missionary journey. He rocks up at Rufus's mum's house with his huge bag of washing, just dumps it there and stuff. She's like, I've got it, no worries. And, and she's cooked his favourite dinner, you know, roast beef and lashings of gravy and Yorkshire pudding. Maybe he's into pad thai. Um, you know, maybe he goes for chicken tikka masala. I don't know. Whatever, you know, whatever the Roman equivalent was. Apparently, uh, uh, stuffed dormouse was a Roman delicacy. Maybe that. <laughs> uh, mm, dormouse. Too tasty. Anyway. <laughs> the point is that the gospel produces this hard-working, high commitment to the cause which gives and which takes risks and which seeks the salvation of anyone and everyone around. It's totally selfless. These are people who've absolutely understood what it means to offer themselves as living sacrifices in true worship, holy and pleasing to God, 24-7, 360 degrees, what Paul was talking about in chapter 12, and 13 and 14. They get it. They're on board. They're committed to God and the mission. Now, we're not all going to be able to be a Phoebe, although some of us might be able to be. But many of us might be a Rufus's mum. Uh, we're not all going to be a Tertius or a Priscilla or Aquila, but we can be a hard worker in another way. But it's the commitment to the mission that's got to drive us. The third thing that really struck me about this fellowship is just how, how warm and heartfelt and, and good it is. These people love each other. Paul loves them, they love him, they, they love each other. And you think of the joy when Paul speaks to them. Verse 2, Phoebe, again, welcome her in the Lord. Uh, verse 4, I give thanks for Priscilla and Aquila. Verse 5, my beloved Eponidas. Uh, verse 8, the beloved Ampliatus. Verse 12, the beloved Persis. Or verse 16, greet each other with a holy kiss. I mean, he's not talking about kind of just... Hey, glad you're here tonight. See you later. I mean, this is the warm fellowship, embracing each other and welcoming each other and loving each other. Here's the true joy of fellowship. When brothers and sisters in Christ work side by side for God's service and glory, for the salvation of the peoples around. That, that's why beach mission's so good, right? Eh? 
or, or leading together with other Christians on a Christian camp and things like that. I mean, obviously the fellowship gets very good sometimes for Beck and you know, meet, meet husbands and stuff, but anyway. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, they, I mean, that's why I love boys' groups so much. But part, partly it's, it's just the joy of working with Gav and Zach and Reardon and Mitch and Jason. You know, it's just an awesome team as we, you know, it's not easy and it's not fun all the time, but I love working with you guys. I mean, watching Zach on Friday just patiently explaining stuff and he's such a good, patient explainer uh, to the kids uh, one-on-one. Uh, it's just a joy serving with them. And that, that's the close-knit fellowship that authentic gospel ministry produces. And I hope and pray that it's an ever-increasing reality for our church. And particularly as we contemplate partnership with Glen Quarry and we met this afternoon, the two parish councils, and uh, it looks like um, we've come to an agreement that that we will um, propose, well, it's got to all be formally happened and all this kind of stuff, but that we will merge uh, and that Glen Quarry will shut down temporarily and come join us and then we'll plant another church together down the track. Uh, but that, you know, provided that all works out and goes forward, that's the kind of close-knit fellowship committed, hard-working, warm, that we're seeking to build with them. But there's a second thing Paul wants them to understand that authentic gospel ministry will do. It won't just create a close-knit fellowship. It'll do that. But notice verses 17 to 20, that working together with Paul in this global mission of reaching the nations with God's gospel will mean keeping a careful watch out against false teachers and false teachings. And I don't know if you thought it was strange when we got to that bit. In the midst of all this warmth and love and all these greetings, there's this little dark section splitting the two halves, uh, splitting the, you know, the, he's the right, I'll greet all those people who are there with you and then there's the back half, which is all the people with me send their greetings. And then there's this little dark section splitting them in verses 17 to 20. I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you've learned. Keep away from them. For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard about your obedience. So I'm full of joy over you, but I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. Uh, He doesn't mean naive about it, that they don't know it, but that he doesn't want them to participate in it. He wants them to be innocent of the evil. And God will soon crush Satan under your feet. Well, why did you have to go and wreck all the niceness with that? Yeah. Ah! And I think the reason's pretty simple. Because the danger is so real, it is so serious, and it is ever present. There are many dangers the church and the gospel faces, persecution, worldliness. But he's warning us here and elsewhere that the greatest danger to the church and to the gospel going forward in the world, to people being made acceptable to God, God's kingdom advancing is the danger of false teaching because it's then that the church is white-anted from inside. And let's be clear, Paul says that false teaching like this is the work of Satan. It is the devil's work, it is the devil's lies. We're not mucking around here. 
Satan wants the message to be distorted because it's the message that saves people and brings them alive and brings them to God. And so if that gets cast aside or distorted or just not spoken about, well, he's done his job. He gets to hang on to them. And Satan's lies come in and they rot out the heart and all that's left is a hollow, empty shell which may look good from the outside but it has no substance within. It's got absolutely nothing to offer and it cannot bring anyone to God because it doesn't have the power of God in the gospel to save people. And the reason we've especially got to be on our guard is verse 18 is because of how incredibly persuasive and deceptive and credible these false teachers are likely to be, are going to be. How clever they are, how slippery and smooth and believable. It says they're smooth talkers and flatterers. Everyone's going to love them because they're really nice. The media in Rome would have welcomed these false teachers as the real McCoy and said, here's the answer to the church. The church ought to be this. They ought to be on about what these guys are on. They ought to be the minister on the, the vote yes commercial who's saying, you know, go, go, go get married. You go, you know, kind of smooth talkers and flatterers. If you ever find yourself as part of a church that only ever speaks positive words, that just seeks to make you feel good and build your ego, watch out. You are in the hands of a false teacher, most likely. Now, someone said the other day, they, they'd been to lots of churches and they've started coming to our church. And like, I just, I don't get it. We're just so negative sometimes. We speak about false teaching here. Never heard heresy ever mentioned at church before. Uh, I take that as a badge of honour, uh, given what he said here, because they've got to warn. That's, the ministry is to warn in part. I mean, it's to promote the gospel, but it's to warn about the false lies as well. We've got to guard the gospel. Always. Always. That's what we're told. And if we don't, we'll be taken by Satan's lies and led into a false message with no power from God and absolutely no hope for us or for anyone else. And so you've got to keep watch. You've got to keep thinking, what are they saying? You've got to say, was Joe speaking about what the Bible was speaking about? You've got to go home and read it again and go, is that right? Keep watch. So authentic gospel ministry creates a close-knit, warm fellowship, hard-working fellowship. It demands a careful watch for false teaching that we might guard the truth. And finally and quickly, it gives us a concrete certainty of where we stand with God and where we will be for eternity. And you can see that in the final paragraph. God, uh, sorry, Paul concludes the letter with this tremendous prayer of adoration in the final paragraph, asking God to be glorified. But how is God going to answer that prayer? Well, he actually tells us how in the middle of the prayer, by securing and establishing people in the sure hope of the gospel. Now to him who is able to establish you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all nations might believe and obey him. To this God, the only wise God, be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. And I love the word established there. You're, most of you are too young to be gardeners, aren't you? Anyone here love gardening? I oh, know you're a landscape gardener. Uh, yeah, at least, 
I didn't know, did you know your daughter was in the garden? <laughs> okay, lemons for supper. Uh, <laughs> having lemons equals I love gardening. Anyway, we'll leave that. But think of the plants in your garden. What are the established plants? What's an established plant? It's one that's that's going well, right? It's got deep roots. It soaks up the nutrients and the water from the ground. It's they're the ones that survive the droughts and the storms, the ones that aren't blown over. They're established. And that's what God does for us in the gospel. He establishes us. He gives us a firm confidence and ability to know him and to stand up and to persevere. (laughs) So this message of the gospel that Paul's on about, he's been writing about, God's message for the salvation of the nations, this is the true treasure which God has brought out on display for the world to see. And not only to appreciate and admire as a thing of beauty, but to be saved by it and be established by it. Here is the greatest treasure the world has ever had and will ever have. Greater than the crown jewels. I mean, that's a thumping great ruby on the coin's crown. Greater than all the gold in Fort Knox. Greater than all the entombed clay warriors of China. Greater even than Tutankhamun's sarcophagus and mummified remains and all the treasures of Egypt that were buried with him. Uh, Tutankhamun toured Australia in the 80s. Uh, Well, he wasn't singing, he was dead. But uh, uh, Tremendous relics of ancient times that for 3,000 years had laid buried. A mystery. But then in 1922, Howard Carter, uh, the Earl of Carnarvon or something, discovered it and in the 1980s, it was paraded around the world and heralded it as the greatest treasure the world had ever seen. You know what? I mentioned that at morning church. You know how many people remembered seeing it? No one. <laughs> like, oh, oh, yeah, that came out. Yeah, that's the greatest. No one was changed. No one was saved. No one was made right with God or set apart. Tutankhamun's dead, impotent, unable to affect any change. But verse 25, this gospel of the living God strengthens and establishes. It is the message that will save the nations. It is the only message that can. Have you welcomed Paul and his gospel message? Will you join in with his mission, which is still going on to the ends of the world? to see men and women from every nation, every culture, every tribe and tongue and background come to Christ as their Lord and Saviour? Are you part of this close-knit, warm, hard-working, committed fellowship of his people on about his work? You can be. You're welcome. Are you carefully guarding yourself and your heart and your mind against lies from Satan? You should be. Are you established and rooted with the sure certainty of the truth of this wonderful gospel treasure, the gospel of Jesus Christ? You must be. There's no other way to be acceptable to God. To the only wise God, our Saviour, be glory forever through Jesus Christ.
Amen. And I pray. Now, loving and heavenly, gracious, heavenly Father, we want to praise you for your gospel, the life it brings, the power of it in the death of Jesus for our salvation is rising again. Thank you for the forgiveness is ours that has all power to strengthen and establish us. We praise you for making this glorious gospel known in history through your apostles like Paul, through your Bible being preserved and given to us down through the ages, through faithful Christians who've gone and taught and preached and taught scripture and shared the gospel with their neighbours all these years. We thank you for disclosing it. And we praise you for bringing this message even to Australia in the 21st century. And we pray that we will continue to develop here amongst us a close-knit fellowship of hard-working, committed gospel workers with warmth and love for one another as we go about this work, supporting each other, caring, praying, financing. We pray that you give us a careful watch against false teaching in our own day and in the days to come. And we pray that you give us supremely great confidence in the sure hope of the gospel. And we ask it for your glory, the glory of your wonderful name and that of your Son and your Holy Spirit. Amen. We're going we're gonna to sing.